Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with increasing tensions inside the American left and among and between American Jewish and Arab communities and on campuses, which has prompted the head of the FBI to warn that violent reactions to Israel's war in Gaza could spill over into the United States. Joining us is Harold Myerson, one of the nation's best-known progressive columnists and editor-at-large of The American Prospect. We'll discuss his latest articles at The American Prospect, the divisions in DSA and why, after 48 years in the organization, I'm quitting, and Israel-Palestine and the generational rift among American progressives. Then we'll look into how China's Xi Jinping is suppressing public grief over the sudden death of China's former premier, Li Keqiang, and the extent to which the hardline leader who has anointed himself leader into the future is both unpopular and insecure in spite of having created the most ubiquitous surveillance state on the planet. Joining us is Andrew Nathan, Professor of Political Science at Columbia University. His teaching and research interests include Chinese politics and foreign policy, the comparative study of political participation and political culture, and human rights, and he is the author of a number of books, including Chinese Democracy, Popular Culture in Late Imperial China, The Great Wall and the Empty Fortress, and China's Transition, the Tiananmen Papers. Then finally, we'll assess Thursday's hearing before the Minnesota Supreme Court to have Donald Trump disqualified from the state's 2024 ballot for insurrection under Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, which is also happening in Colorado, followed by New Hampshire, Arizona, and Michigan. Joining us is David Schultz, a professor of political science at Hamline University and the University of Minnesota School of Law. He's the author of 30 books and various articles on American politics, ethics, election law, and the media. Most recently, Presidential Swing States, Why Only Ten Matter, Election Law and Democratic Theory, and American Politics in the Age of Ignorance, Why Lawmakers Choose Belief Over Research. He blogs at Schultzstake dot blogspot.com where his latest article is if the u.s presidential election were held today or why democrats should be beyond worried and before we begin background briefing's mission of building a reality-based community in post-truth america is taking on a new urgency now that we have a fundamentalist christian theocrat in charge of the people's house as trump's insurrectionists know-nothings election deniers and armed and angry cult followers threaten to take over the executive branch having already captured the judiciary we are in a fight between those who no longer believe in democracy and those who have to defend it or see it die please make a tax-deductible donation at backgroundbriefing.org donate or at our foundation publictruthmedia.org so that we can continue to seek out facts and information to awaken America's silent majority before democracy is trumped by fascism, wrapped in the flag and carrying a Bible. And joining us now is Harold Myerson, one of the nation's best-known progressive columnists and editor-at-large of The American Prospect. He also writes regularly about California politics for the Los Angeles Times and other national publications. And his latest articles at The American Prospect include The Divisions in DSA and Why After 48 Years in the Organization I'm Quitting and Israel, Palestine and the Generational Rift Among American Progressives. Welcome to Background Briefing, Harold Myerson. Always, always good to be here, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us. And obviously, I want to talk to you about increasing tensions inside the American left and among and between American Jewish and Arab communities and on campuses. But let's just start with Israel itself. We're now learning that the finance minister, Smotrich, who's a religious nationalist, he's now at war with the defense minister because Smotrich is now refusing to pass on the money that the government has allotted for the Palestinian Authority just to keep the lights on, which has never happened before, at a time of incredible tensions. So the defense minister is saying, you know, for God's sake, don't make life more difficult for the Palestinians in the West Bank at a time when they're, you know, on the brink of erupting. And Smotrich, of course, is fine with that, you know. So... It just makes me realize, and I think we've talked about this before, how much religious nationalism is the greatest curse humanity faces, whether it's the religious nationalists, Hamas, justifying their 
butchery uh, in the name of God. And these clowns, uh, Smotrich and company, running roughshod over the Palestinians, and not to mention our own Christian nationalists, now that we've got one yeah, a new speaker as the of Speaker the of the House. Yes. <laughs> yes. No, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a huge problem. And, 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 you know, I mean, in, an ob, you know, in, in a way, as you just said, there is a, uh, a similarity, uh, of, you know, in, in the goals of, of a guy like Smotrich and uh, Hamas. They, they both want uh, an ethnically homogenous state from the river to the sea, uh, you know, and uh, both of them uh, will you know, clearly, you know, do anything to uh, stomp on anything that suggests there might be just a scintilla of coexistence between Israeli and Palestinian populations. Uh, there's, there's, there's almost a codependency uh, between uh, Hamas and these guys, uh, Hamas and Bibi. I mean, you know, the only reason Bibi was elected prime minister in the first place was uh, in 1995, 96, he was running against Shimon Peres, who had been the foreign minister who temporarily succeeded Yitzhak Rabin as prime minister after Rabin was assassinated by a right-wing Israeli. Uh, and um, Paris was favored, and so Hamas then you know, began a series of bombings and the civilian targets within Israel uh, to scare Israelis, and uh, you know, Bibi was a surprise winner of that. And in, in this week's New Yorker magazine, David Remnick, reports on a meeting that BB had a closed door meeting with some supporters in which he said, you know, if you want to stop a two state solution, you have to support Hamas, and give them resources. Uh, and, you know, BB has been entirely uh, denigrating to uh, the Palestinian Authority uh, and thought he had to deal with Hamas. And, uh, you know, uh, th- th- these are codependent groups. They need uh, the extremism of the other to validate their own worldview that coexistence is impossible. And that, you know, to at great cost to both the Israelis and Palestinians, uh, that's what's going on right now. So just to touch on your piece about the divisions in the DSA, the Democratic Socialist of America, and why after 48 years in the organization I'm quitting. I mean, first of all, Harold, you must have been a founding father, right? <laughs> Yeah, well, I was. I joined one of the two predecessor organizations, the Democratic Socialist Organizing Committee, in 1975. It had actually come into existence in 1973, so I wasn't a founding father, but I, I got on board early. That that much is that much is sure. The you know the other obvious fact is I am now a certifiable geezer. So uh, there you go. Well, but what you're writing about is that it's just mystifying to me why elements in the American left don't understand what we've been talking about, the difference between religious fanaticism and secular government. I mean, the PLO and the Palestinian Authority, they're secular. The Hamas is influenced by Iran and the Muslim Brotherhood into being a religious nationalist, fanatical Party the the leaders, by the way, got the hell out before they they sent these killers right. across the border, and the leader on um, Lebanese television has just just said, you know, we're going to do it again and again. We'll just do what we did on October the seventh. We just murder women and children because you know because we're occupied. That's the rationale. So I don't understand why anybody in the left could not recognize that. You can support the Palestinians, but you don't have to support religious nationalists. I uh, I agree, and you know there there are other issues within DSA about. Uh, I mean, the, the the great irony in DSA is it grew uh, as a result of Bernie Sanders running for president as a Democratic Socialist, and then uh, subsequent electoral victories by uh, people like Alexandria Ocasio Cortez. Uh, but it grew so much that, well, uh, two things happened. One is that every more or less sectarian group said, oh, my God, well, this is obviously something so big we have to join it. But, you know, they they brought some of their sectarian values about, you know, requiring 
elected officials to toe the line of whatever uh, the DSA line was, which has been, you know, an issue of some contention within DSA. And then, thankfully, you know, it was mainly young people who joined, just as it was mainly young people who supported Bernie Sanders and so on. Uh, uh, And, you know, uh, young people are of an age where, uh, you know, Israel has been under the you know, unbroken control of political forces uh, led by people like Bibi um, and at, at a time of Israeli oppression. And so they form, you know, a, a view relating to this. And that no doubt uh, was part of the basis for what is not just within DSA, but, you know, um, among just many young people generally, an anti-Israeli view that is a good deal dismissive of other concerns i mean you don't you don't have to uh, at all support people like Bibi, uh and you can be supporting palestinian nationalism without you know reacting either favorably or indifferently to what hamas did on october 7th so in terms of your other piece israel palestine and the gen and the generational rift among american progressives I mean, how much of an issue is this? Because you know, you've seen terrible stuff happening on campuses, and particularly on at Cornell, they just busted this kid who threatened to kill Jews, etc. There's concerns now, just electorally, that Biden's going to lose Michigan because the Arab vote necessarily, uh, understandably, is is angry at what's happening to the civilians in Gaza. Now Biden is talking about a pause. But he was confronted actually by a, a rabbi, a woman who had a speech in Minnesota, yelled out to him, <laughs> forget about a pause, how about a ceasefire? So this is the situation we're in now. And what's your sense then of what part of the left is going to prevail? The, the, those that are well, I don't, I, so long as it's split, neither part of the left is going to prevail. That's the problem. Uh, uh, you know, I mean, uh, if if the split becomes deep and uh, isn't in some way mended, uh, you know, the ultimate beneficiary of that is Donald Trump and his goons. So it is a real problem. I mean, my suggestion to Biden is that, you know, he has to get as serious about the two-state solution as or more serious than, than the American government ever has been and, and condition uh, all forthcoming Israeli aid, I guess, once we get through this immediate period when it's already, you know, becoming a relative fait accompli, but condition all Israeli aid on the withdrawal of the settlements from the West Bank, which won't be easy. But I think that's the only plausible way uh, that Biden can really push for A, for a two-state solution, and B, to bring some points of commonality to a now fractured American left. So in terms of what's happening on the ground, because Israel is and the military are dictating what's going on, and a lot of analysts, and even Netanyahu himself, said that this could take months. My feeling is that it's actually not, not going to take very long at all, that they're making considerable progress, the Israelis, in, in their aim to eradicate Hamas. They're capturing a bunch of them. They're killing as many as they can. So is there a game going on here where Biden is talking about a pause and the Israelis maybe they don't want a ceasefire, that's for sure. Maybe they'll agree to a pause. They've opened up. Some of the people are getting out at the Rafa crossing, but still most people are trapped inside there, and it's just horrendous. And every day that goes by, you see more and more pictures of wounded and traumatized children. So the optics and dead children and dead children, yes, and and grief, unbelievable grief, which people forget about the grief on October the seventh as a result. So what, what's your sense then of, of, is there a game going on behind the scenes here? And do you agree with me that maybe this thing is going to be over, over sooner than later? Well, I certainly hope it's over sooner than later. I think, I mean, the interesting question is what, is, what are the expectations of Biden and the people around him? Uh, 
I don't think that they necessarily believe if they call for uh, a ceasefire or even a pause, which they've now done, they're going to get it. Uh, you know, and there was, there was a story somewhere, uh, I, I think in the Washington Post recently, about how they also don't expect Bibi to be prime minister for that long, for my, that much longer, that he, uh, uh, you know, uh, that there's a sort of revolt against his leadership now, which obviously has not uh, yielded anything other than disaster uh, for Israel and that they would hope they could find, you know, a, a more, uh, malleable Israeli government. But really, I think, you know, um, if you look at the internal divisions in Israel, uh, all of those people demonstrating against Bibi's plan to defang the Israeli Supreme Court, that there the two communities supporting Bibi on, on all of this stuff were the ultra-Orthodox and the settlers. And I think everything needs to be done to, uh, you know, really kind of make the case that the settlers are a huge obstacle to any enduring uh, peace or coexistence or whatever, uh, and make that case as forcefully as we can, uh, because I think there are portions of the Israeli public that uh, that get that, although they're not about to do do something in the middle of a war. Um, and and the most effective way we can do that is to condition American aid to Israel on the withdrawal of these uh, of these settlements, which are you know a huge obstacle to any kind of uh, you know settlement in the other uh, meaning of the word uh, of, of uh, the Israeli-Palestinian ongoing conflict. Well, tell that to the Christian nationalist now the speaker. I mean, right, tying right. aid yeah. to Israel to cutting, gutting the IRS, you know, after, you know, McCarthy was able to gut $20 billion just to keep the government going, and now right. they want to take another $14.3 billion out shows you what their priorities are. But just in the last few minutes, though, do you think that after this, the Yom Kippur War, which when Israel was caught by surprise, as they were caught by surprise on October the 7th, that led to Camp David, This after that war, that led to Camp David and Israel gave up the Sinai for a peace treaty with Egypt that's lasted to this day, although it's being strained by the Israeli right wanting to dump all the Gazans on Egypt. But is there a possibility that if you get rid of Netanyahu, and my understanding is from what I hear from Israel, is he's getting blamed. It's not the military that's getting blamed. He's very right. unpopular now. So he he's obviously a dead man walking. So what do you think in terms of the deal that you just said, condition aid well, to Israel you know, I, on I, again, getting I rid think, of the settlements? Yeah, I, I mean, I, look, that's going to be a, a huge battle in and of itself. I just don't know any other battle that could have ultimately a good outcome uh, for both uh, Israelis and and Palestinians. Uh, but someone's got to make the case. And honestly, the only someone who has enough power to make uh, any kind of difference is the president of the United States, who also coincidentally has a lot of credibility uh, when he says, I've been a friend of Israel. And so, you know, if not now, when, and if not, uh, who, uh, other than Biden, uh, you know, I mean, the ball is really in his court, but he's got to go sort of in a place where no American president has previously gone. And I would add, incidentally, that American Jews, who are a liberal population, are really fine if uh, Israel gets out of the West Bank. It's the Christian evangelicals, <laughs> you know, who believe that God gave that land to Israel thousands of years ago, who who are who would object to that, but they're not exactly in the democratic base and shouldn't deter Joe Biden. No, they're certainly in the speaker's chair, but Yeah, and, they are, and, yeah. And, and they don't even care about the Israelis. They're just using the Israelis as a means to bring about the end of the world. So you right, and me and right. everybody we yeah. know we end up in the lake of fire. And they all get That's raptured right. up into heaven, and and only 144,000 Jews get raptured up. So it's not a good deal for Israel. No. <laughs> <laughs> no. Well, Harold, on that note, I thank you for joining us. Always good to be here, Ian. 
And again, I've been speaking with Harold Myerson, one of the nation's best-known progressive columnists and editor-at-large of The American Prospect. He also writes regularly about California politics for the Los Angeles Times and other national publications. And his latest article at The American Prospect include The Divisions in DSA and Why After 48 Years in the Organization I'm Quitting and Israel-Palestine and the Generational Rift Among American Progressives. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back looking into how China's Xi Jinping is suppressing public grief over the sudden death of China's former premier and how the hardline leader is both unpopular and insecure in spite of having created the most ubiquitous surveillance state on the planet. Yes, some is good and some is bad. Brother, keep your faith on hand on every side. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Andrew Nathan, Professor of Political Science at Columbia University. His teaching and research interests include Chinese politics and foreign policy, the comparative study of political participation and political culture, and human rights. He's the author of a number of books, including Chinese Democracy, Popular Culture in Late Imperial China, The Great Wall and the Empty Fortress, and China's Transition, the Tiananmen Papers. Welcome to Background Briefing, Andrew Nathan. Thank you. So there's an effort underway on the part of the Chinese government to basically discourage or even crush, I guess, public tributes to the former Premier Li Keqiang, who clearly is held in great affection. I, I recall before Tiananmen, there was an outpouring of grief for Huyo Bang, who was also held in great esteem, and of course that ended tragically. And it seems as if the outpouring of grief for the former premier is unsettling Xi Jinping. How do you see it? Yeah, and before the uh, case that you mentioned of Huyo Bang, there was the death of Zhou Enlai, the very beloved premier under Mao. And when Joe died, this triggered big demonstrations that were put down while Mao was still alive. So there is that precedent. I think in this case, Li Keqiang himself was not that beloved, not as beloved as Joe or as Hu Yaobang. But people are taking the advantage to sort of draw the contrast with Xi Jinping. I have the impression that Chinese people are pretty tired of Xi Jinping and his his way of ruling. And so... This, it's not so much that they love Li Keqiang as that he is the non-Xi Jinping and they can uh, express some distaste for Xi by commemorating Li. So that's what I, I'm interested in and what I get an inkling of, which is uh, that there is a yearning amongst the Chinese people for better governance, for more freedom. And I don't know the extent to which we can talk about democracy but Xi Jinping has clearly turned the clock back, tried to create a cult of personality around himself, and is not particularly well-educated and seems to be clumsy in a hard-line kind of way. How do you see him? Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, I think his image is of somebody who's stiff, uh, doesn't uh, you know, have a popular touch. He's demanding this heavy degree of personality cult fealty to his own thought. And I think the Chinese people now are too sophisticated to really accept that. Um, also, just in a more practical way, they've been through this COVID lockdown, which was really hard on, uh, on everybody. It slowed down the economy. It locked people up in their apartments. And then all of a sudden, the COVID lockdown was eliminated overnight. And so that kind of shows that the emperor has no clothes and the policy that was supposed to be so brilliant, all of a sudden it was dispensable. The economy is slowing down. Um, there are a lot of reasons for Chinese people to be um, to, to be disillusioned with, you know, the great leader who claims to be infallible. So 
how does this affect US foreign policy? Because one of the most appalling things that happened during Trump's reckless, incompetent tenure was, you know, he cooked about the China virus and he was bashing China as opposed to the Chinese communist leadership. So is there any way that the US can appeal to the very people in China who are now mourning the former premier and who don't like the hardline changes underway by Xi Jinping, as opposed to basically demonizing China itself, as opposed to the party leadership? Yeah, it's very unfortunate that we, that in American politics, you can only, uh, the only politically beneficial thing for a politician to do, especially people in Congress, is to be harder than the next guy on China. So that's uh, very unfortunate. And it, it, I think myself and most of my friends in the Chinese studies community feel that although China is a serious competitor and represents a threat around certain issues like Taiwan, that we need to continue to live with China because it's not going to go away. And uh, it doesn't behoove us to exaggerate the China threat or to I mean, another thing that's just horrible to see is the anti-Asian sort of racist uh, behavior and bias that we find in some parts of the population. Those things are, are, are very dysfunctional. But I don't know that. Uh, so paradoxically, despite what you and I have been agreeing on, that Chinese people are tired of Xi Jinping, I think his control over power is secure. Of course, we debate about this, but among the China specialists, but to, to my eye, he has locked up uh, all the instruments of power. He's in control. He doesn't have any effective uh, opposition within the military, within the power elite and the upper levels of the Communist Party. So I don't think he's going to go away. And I don't see a way for us to make him back off. That's another thing. I mean, a lot of um, Western and Chinese analysts think that Xi Jinping has made a bunch of mistakes in foreign policy, being too aggressive, uh, baiting the United States, um, uh, uh, har harassing uh, the Philippines, harassing Taiwan, Japan, turning a lot of China's neighbors against China that he should have gone softer and taken more time if he wanted to uh, increase China's influence. But he doesn't seem to think so. He, he, We don't know his personality intimately, but from what we can see from the outside, he's highly self-confident and stubborn and seems to be uh, able, you know, intent on going on the way that he is and not subject to any checks and balances within the political system. So I don't see how we can, I think we have to do what Biden is doing, which is to sort of strengthen the alliances and rejigger the military posture in the Asia Pacific and so on and so forth to compete. But I don't think we're going to get him to back off, I'm afraid. Well, he's created the most ubiquitous surveillance state on the planet, right? These people trying to mourn the late Premier um, yeah. Li Keqiang, particularly in his hometown, they're being, you know, discouraged by these plainclothes cops and, and the BBC and other media t teams are being curtailed. And every time any Chinese citizen talks about how much they admired the late premier, they get hustled off, you know. I mean, that's just a small example of the... Um, and uniform. So uh, on Halloween, I don't know if you saw this, some of my Chinese friends shared with me pictures from Shanghai on Halloween. Some people got dressed up and one of the outfits that some people used is Winnie the Pooh because Winnie the Pooh with his sort of fat belly and sort of what, what would you say, sort of swinging way of walking. Uh, Xi Jinping resembles <laughs> Winnie the Pooh. And so then when somebody showed up in a Winnie the Pooh costume, the cops came along and hustled the person off. And there were some other 
sort of sarcastic comments and the cops swarmed these people and uh, didn't arrest them, but just sort of hustled them away. So there's a plainclothes and uniform cops and cameras, uh, you know, face recognition and so forth everywhere. So he doesn't have a sense of humor then, Xi Jinping, right? (laughs) (laughs) Apparently he's got, he's very sensitive. He gets easily affronted. You know, Justin Trudeau apparently rubbed him the wrong way. And he personally seems like he's insecure in spite of the fact that he's wielding so much power and accruing so much power to himself. Uh, I guess it's his lack of education and whatever. Uh, I don't know. What do you think? (laughs) I don't, I don't, he may have reasons to feel insecure because, uh, you know, the, the political decisions that he has to make are very difficult and staying on top of the Chinese system in, in an effective way is very hard. We've had leaders before who stayed in office, for example, Hu Jintao, another person named Hu, uh, but a different person from Hu Yaobang, who was the head of the party and the head of the state for a full 10 years, but he had a hard time really consolidating any real power. So power under him was divided. And Xi Jinping, when he came to power, uh, decided that uh, he he didn't want power to be divided. And so this led to this incredibly broad ranging purge, sort of permanent purge of people, usually on accusations of corruption that Xi Jinping used to consolidate power. So when you've purged so many people uh, and consolidated so much power, I think you should feel insecure. Well, it seems, though, that the social contract that the Chinese Communist Party have with Chinese citizens is breaking down. The old contract was that you stay out of politics and don't express any opinions, and we will guarantee you a prosperous future. But it's not happening now. This growing unemployment, particularly youth unemployment, is about 23% of college graduates. So is that what's happening, that the social contract is breaking down? I think it is. So youth is one very important area to look, urban youth um, who are as you said, unemployment is a huge problem and unemployment among youth who have college education, who expected um, a, a good life uh, and um, respect. I mean, they expect respect from the system, from the political and economic system. Are They seem to be disillusioned. This is something, you know, one of the things that that Xi Jinping has done is to make it very hard for us to do research in China, whether it's interviews, survey research, just, you know, visits to China. It happened during COVID, but now after COVID, it's still very hard to so to do that so that we, we really don't have a good information from a social science point of view, really reliable information on youth. But the impression is, as you said, is the youth are disillusioned, frustrated. The entrepreneurs do not feel that their property and wealthy people that their property is safe. They want to get out. Um, And um, the intellectuals are, you know, uh, have to march to Xi Jinping's uh, tune. But again, from what I can encounter, they in, in their private conversations among each other, they're very disillusioned and cynical. And so, uh, and the economy, of course, as you know, is slowing down and the official growth rate, I mean, in the 90s, it was in double digits. During COVID, it went down to about 5%. Now the official rate is four point something, but we are very skeptical that it has reached, that that's the real rate. And we don't know what the real rate is. And some people say it's 3%, 2% or even negative, And we just don't know. Um, but, um, but in terms of the social contract, people who went through this period when the economy was booming and, and, and opportunities for private enterprise were all over the place and a lot of people made a lot of money, that is changing. So, um, however, again, I have to caution that I don't see people sort of daring to come together to resist because it's too dangerous. 
So what do you think that will happen uh, in a f- couple of weeks now, I believe, in San Francisco at the Asia-Pacific a- Economic Forum where Xi Jinping will be meeting with uh, Joe Biden? So they've been giving the Chinese side, well, but the American side strongly uh, not just giving signals, but, you know, acted out by sending uh, Blinken and uh, to China and uh, Gina Raimondo, the Secretary of Commerce, Janet Yellen, sending all these cabinet level officers to China to tell the Chinese leadership that we're not trying to 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 turn off the Chinese economic boom. We're not trying to contain you, but we have important disagreements um, among which I personally would rank Taiwan as the number one, really the most dangerous uh, between the two countries. And so the U.S. and that we want to cooperate. So John Kerry, who's meeting, I, I don't forget exactly when, but imminently or now maybe with the Chinese climate czar. So the U.S. sent this signal. We do want to talk. We don't want the relationship to go down the tubes. And the Chinese uh, have responded, given signals more more subtly. Well, first of all, receiving the Americans and holding substantive conversations, receiving American business leaders and stuff like that. So it looks like the Chinese also want to arrest the decline uh, what relations can't be good. They're not going to turn around and become good old day kind of thing. But to just sort of set a floor under the relationship, the Chinese seem to want to do that. And so I think in the APEC meeting, when Biden and Xi talk, they will uh, basically agree to set this floor under the relationship and maybe create some mechanisms for dialogue. One of the important mechanisms that the Chinese resist is better communication between the two militaries, because the Chinese feel that, so the US thing is that you guys are engaging in dangerous maneuvers with our ships and planes in the area, and there could be an accident, and then both sides would have a hard time handling it. And it could be dangerous, but the Chinese side feels that if they go into these so-called mill-to-mill talks, making life easier for the American ships and planes, which they view as illegitimately there, their view is you shouldn't even be there. So if they're going to facilitate us being there by, by reducing risky behavior, that's where they're hung up on this idea of mill to mill and have not agreed to it. So I think that's something that Biden certainly will press for. Well, Andrew, Nathan, I thank you for joining us. Uh, I appreciate it. You're welcome. Thank you. And again, I've been speaking with Andrew Nathan, who's a professor of political science at Columbia University. His teaching and research interests include Chinese politics and foreign policy, the comparative study of political participation and political culture and human rights. He's the author of a number of books, including Chinese Democracy, Popular Culture in Late Imperial China, The Great Wall and the Empty Fortress, and China's Transition, the Tiananmen Papers. We're going to take a brief station break and back accessing the hearing before Minnesota's Supreme Court to have Donald Trump disqualified from the state's 2024 ballot for insurrection under Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, which is also happening in Colorado, followed by New Hampshire, Arizona, and Michigan. In the... Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now, David Schultz, a professor of political science at Hamline University and the University of Minnesota School of Law. 
He's the author of 30 books and various articles on American politics, ethics, election law, and the media, most recently Presidential Swing States, Why Only Ten Matter, Election Law and Democracy Theory, and American Politics in the Age of Ignorance, Why Lawmakers Choose Belief Over Research. And he blogs at shultstake.blogspot.com, where his latest article is If the U.S. Presidential Election Were Held Today, or Why Democrats Should Be Beyond Worried. Welcome to Background Briefing, David Schultz. My pleasure. Thank you for having me again. Well, thanks for joining us. And the Supreme Court in Minnesota today, where you are, David, heard the case to have Trump barred from the ballot in the state of Minnesota based upon the Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, which says no person shall be a senator or representative in Congress or elector of president and vice president or hold any office civil or military under the United States or under any state who, having previously taken an oath as a member of Congress or as an officer of the United States or as a member of any state legislature or as an executive or or judicial officer of any state to support the Constitution of the United States shall have engaged in insurrection or rebellion against the same or given aid and comfort to the enemies thereof. But Congress may by a vote of two-thirds of each house, remove such disability. So this is happening across the country, as a matter of fact. There's a case underway in Colorado, a similar case, and there's also the state of Arizona is lining up to do it, along with New Hampshire and Michigan. So what happened today in the Minnesota Supreme Court? Well, what happened is that the petitioners, the people who were asking for Trump to be taken off the ballot, what they said is their basic argument was first that the clause that you just read um, should be applied, that the Minnesota that Donald Trump should be considered a a an insurrectionist, um, or at least at the very least, they should um, that Donald Trump should have um, a hearing to determine whether he's an insurrectionist under Minnesota law. And then if the court determines that he is an insurrectionist, order the secretary of state um, to exclude him from the ballot. So again, rephrase it here. It's basically asking for the Minnesota Supreme Court to order a hearing to determine if Donald Trump fits the bill in terms of what he did on January 6th as an insurrectionist. And then if so, order him um, not to be able to appear on the ballot in 2024. So did they make that argument then, or did they show pictures of the insurrection? I mean, how, how do they present the case that what happened on January the 6th was an insurrection for which Donald Trump was responsible? Well, what's interesting is that most of the hearing today really surrounded whether Minnesota Supreme Court had the authority to hear the case and whether it should hear the case. Um, Chief Justice uh, Chief Justice Hudson at several points um, was grilling um, the attorneys for, um, for for those who were asking for Trump to be excluded, saying, why should we legally hear this case? Can we legally hear this case? Shouldn't this be a matter for Congress to address? And, and, and politically, shouldn't we just defer? So what the court was really pushing at this point was really trying to, con- to get both sides to address whether or not they had the authority to even hear the case. There was some discussion when Trump's attorneys um, were, were arguing in terms of the questions of whether what happened on January 6th was an insurrection or not. But for the most part, this was not about making a factual determination about what happened, but more of whether the court should be allowed to hear this case and what would be the repercussions if the Minnesota Supreme Court were to hear the case or allow for the case to be heard. So the case was brought on behalf of a group of Minnesota voters by Free Speech for People. Uh, It's an organization. Um, I think I've interviewed some of the people running it uh, before. And among the petitioners, you have the former Secretary of State of Minnesota, Joan Grove, and a former Supreme Court Justice, Paul Anderson. So did Anderson carry any weight with his uh, former colleagues? No, it did not appear to be so, that... Uh, that for the most part, 
there's only one justice on the court, I believe now, who served on the court when when Paul Anderson was there. Um, this is a court that has made a pretty significant on uh, transition in the last few years. It is now a a, a court that's composed of six Democrats appointed by our six democratically appointed um, um, justices and one Republican, but two of them recused themselves. So we really only had five justices hearing hearing the uh, the case today, and I didn't really get a sense by listening to the four Democrats and the one Republicans that there was really much of a difference in terms of how they appear to be ideologically approaching the case. They were they were I think all. Um, um, interested in find, again finding out um, if 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 they were really entitled to again to hear this case and again the the group represented you know by Grow and by Anderson was pressing hard in saying that this is a question about ballot eligibility under state law you're required Minnesota Supreme Court to address questions of ballot eligibility and therefore you have no choice in this matter and the and, and so that was i think one of the stronger arguments i think from like a, a call a procedural point of view that was being made and the Supreme Court Minnesota Supreme Court several of the justices again ex- expressed some skepticism, um, but they didn't rule out the possibility. What I didn't hear today, I did not hear any justice say outright, um, um, you win, you lose, or anything like that. What I more heard was just a lot of questions and, and information gathering. Although, I, again, right now, it sounds like they're going to try to avoid making the decision because one of the things that several of the justices expressed concern about was, well, what if we decide this one way and another state decides it another way? Don't we have potentially a kind of a patchwork quilt all across the country in terms of, of what might happen? So, so my prediction right now is the court will more likely than not punt, but you can't always based upon oral arguments and questioning predict what the judges are going to do. But the lawsuit doesn't name Trump as a defendant. It actually names the Secretary of State, Steve Simon, a Democrat. Correct. You're absolutely correct. And, and so the suit should really, she was technically against, against the Secretary of State saying that he's ordered to remove um, Donald Trump from the ballot. Um, but what happened is the court allowed both Donald Trump and the Republican Party of Minnesota to be able to intervene um, to to have some have some comments, and what their arguments were in terms of Donald Trump was to first argue that that under the Fourteenth Amendment, Donald Trump or the office of the presidency is is not an officer, uh, and the court wasn't very sympathetic to that. The second thing was argued is that what he did on January sixth did not rise to the level of an insurrection. And then third, that what he did on January 6th is protected by the First Amendment as free speech. These are essentially the same arguments that he's making um, in in his other um, criminal cases across the United States. And even though the court at one point, Justice Barry Anderson, who I think was the one of the republic, the one Republican there, was having a discussion with with the Trump, with the Republican and Trump attorneys about what constitutes an insurrection. Um, it, you, you got the sense that the court was saying, okay, uh, there's lots of possibilities of what could be an insurrection. Um, maybe there has to be some further hearing to determine does this rise to a constitutional level. That may be the one hint, the the one possibility in terms of where the court might be willing to go and say, "All right, we don't have enough information today. Um, let's let's order, let's say, a special master to conduct an evidentiary hearing, gather more material, and, and then make a recommendation to us." That's that's that is a slim possibility of emerging out of what I heard today. Well, interestingly enough, a couple of prominent uh, law professors who are active members of the Federalist Society, which has stacked the judiciary with these conservative and sometimes totally unqualified judges, 
mm-hmm. William Bowd and of the University of Chicago and Michael Stokes Paulson of the University of St. Thomas. They wrote an article recently in, at the University of Pennsylvania Law Review declaring that under the 14th Amendment, Donald Trump, quote, cannot run for president, cannot become president, cannot hold office. So has anybody, you know, used their arguments? I mean, in other words, they would have made pretty good witnesses, given that they, 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 they come from the right, you know? Yeah, their, their arguments are literally all through the arguments being made by those who want to exclude um, Donald, you know, Donald Trump from the ballot. And in some sense, that article is really the genesis for these lawsuits across the country, because you're absolutely correct that the two people who wrote this original piece have impeccable um, conservative credentials. And it's just an interesting pitting of, of these two individuals, along with the in many cases, Democrats and others um, against Donald Trump in terms of fighting over on, on the issue of the ballot, uh, his ballot acts or be able to appear on the ballot. So th- there is an incredible amount of irony. And there are, again, their arguments really are, are all through there. And in some of the briefs that were filed, you do see references up to their arguments um, in, in, in many, many situations. Well, again, this lawsuit in Minnesota was brought by Free Speech for People. Um, actually, I remember now it's John Boniface who heads it up, who I've interviewed before. The other group that brought the case uh, in Colorado that's still being determined is Crew, right? Citizens for Responsibility and Ethics in Washington. But in general, though, David, it seems to me that this is not a great idea to take Trump off the ballot. Not that I have any sympathy for the guy, and I think he's an insurrectionist and a fascist and a, a total disgrace. But all this is going to do, if it if it works, and it's these states take him off the ballot, it's just going to reinforce this delusion amongst his MAGA followers that the deep state is out to get him. So isn't I, it better just to have a damn election and hope for the best? Well, that's what I think, too. My own personal view is that this does reinforce his narrative of the of the stolen election. And I think the fact that these lawsuits have already been brought um, has already enforced that narrative for him. And it's probably motivating his his base to turn out um, in, in even, you know, in, perhaps even in greater intensity this coming year. The, the other thing that I'm concerned about here is precedent in a couple of ways. You know, you know, one of them is that if this is done now against Donald Trump, um, I can see somebody later this year or next year trying to come up with something and claim that something that Joe Biden or some Democrat did rises to the level of insurrection. I don't know what it would be, but come, comes up with something and we start to see lawsuits back and forth. And then the other concern I have is Take us back a quarter century ago. There was a case called Bush v. Gore in which the U.S. Supreme Court um, decided on the electors and basically decided on on how ballots would be counted in Florida, stopped the ballot counting there, and gave the election to to George Bush. And many people criticized the Supreme Court for deciding the outcome of the 2000 election. I think we should have learned the lesson from that, that we probably shouldn't let the courts make the decision. What we should do is what? If you really don't want to see Trump on the ballot or if you don't want to see Trump elected, get out there, organize um, um, and campaign like there's no tomorrow and defeat him in the way he was defeated back in, in 2020. That's the better solution. This just sets us up to look um, really bad and, and, and really, again, reinforce the Trump narrative and belief among his followers. So your article at your blog, uh, David, um, the, if the U.S. presidential election were held today or why Democrats should be beyond worried, you're echoing what a lot of Democrats are expressing and polls and, and even, even people uh, like James Carville uh, are ex- expressing alarm. What do you think the problem is? Because Biden has been an incredibly successful president. Uh, And, you know, we just learned that the U.S. economy is, what was it, 5% GDP growth in the last quarter? Mm -hmm. 
Uh, And I mean, any politician would love to have those numbers. And unemployment is down. I mean, inflation's coming down. I just don't understand why there's so much disquiet amongst Democrats and and the polls are reflecting this too, and I don't know why. What's the problem? Why why is Biden not getting his due? And what's making Democratic voters nervous? And uh, I mean, obviously, we know from the current situation in Israel that he may lose Michigan because of the Arab vote and the young vote as well across the country. But in general, mm-hmm. I don't yeah. get it. What's your analysis? Yeah, my sense is, is that Unfortunately, image is everything. And when we look at polls across the country, um, about 60 to 65 percent, depending on the numbers you look at, um, are worried about Biden's age. And they, 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 they see him on television and they see the way that he walks or talks or something. And the narrative, the narrative out there now is He's too old. He's too old. You know, at age 80, even though Donald Trump is what, what, 76, you know, you know, you know, very close, you know, very yeah. close at 77, 77 like that. But but when the media sometimes creates a script, um, 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 it dooms people. And, and one of my friends has made the argument of saying that potentially this is. 1979, 1980, all over again, where the media wrote a script about Jimmy Carter, um, an argument about who he was or claiming he was ineffective, um, and it stuck. It stuck with him um, and really sort of doomed him. And I think that's the problem right now is that Biden has, has I think, more of an image problem, and I'm going to say a public relations problem because I think you're absolutely right. Things like the Inflation Reduction Act um, have made a tremendous impact upon the economy and upon, um, let us say, our transition from a a carbon-based to, let's say, a non-carbon-based economy. Uh, I know every president's I mean, almost anybody, you know, would would pay a king's ransom for 5% growth, about what, 3% um, unemployment and relatively low inflation. Gas prices are coming down now. His numbers look great, but but the public has a fixation and the mainstream media has fixated um, on an image for him that he just can't shake right now. Well, David Schultz, I thank you for joining us. I appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you, Ian. And again, I've been speaking with David Schultz, who's a professor of political science at Hamline University and the University of Minnesota School of Law. He's the author of 30 books and various articles on American politics, ethics, election law, and the media. Most recently, Presidential Swing States, Why Only Ten Matter, Election Law and Democracy Theory, and American Politics in the Age of Ignorance, Why Lawmakers Choose Belief Over Research. And he blogs at shortstake.blogspot.com, where his latest article is, If the U.S. Presidential Elections Were Held Today, or Why Democrats Should Be Beyond Worried. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon and assistant producer Evan Green to help us sustain this program into the future and ensure it remains free to all. Please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you've missed any of today's programs or would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcast, and we encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family and colleagues. And I'll be back again on Sunday with another background briefing. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305 Took the kids to the park and disappeared by half past nine Who will ever know how much she loved them so That dark night alone
One more let goes out in 